Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Politico's Nerdcast. I'm your host, Scott Bland. Coming up this week, we talked about campaign strategies for the 2020 field in general last time. So we're doing a little bit of a shot chaser thing. We're going to be taking a deep dive this week into Elizabeth Warren's campaign strategy with a Politico reporter who was on the trail with her. And then we're going to jump into the new qualifying rules for the second set of Democratic presidential debates and why a bunch of candidates hate them. And so we've got some of Politico's campaign reporters who have been covering that uh, coming on the show as well. Just a heads up before we jump in here, we are taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday, May 30th. So it's all up to date as of then. All right, let's get started. I want to welcome the guest for our first segment, Alex Thompson, national political reporter for Politico. Hey, Alex. Hey, how you doing, Scott? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for coming in. Let's jump right into it with our first data point, which is over 200. And that's how many community events so far Elizabeth Warren's campaign has put on in Iowa, the first caucus state. And that number is only going to go up exponentially uh, from here on out. And that that number, and you, you've brought a lot of facts and figures in here uh, to, to talk about this today, Alex, but it's it's safe to say that Elizabeth Warren is making a big bet on Iowa and a, a big bet on a big campaign there and, and elsewhere. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening on the ground? And, and for context, we've seen Warren kind of creep up the polls a little bit, a little bit each of the past few months. Now she's really firmly ensconced in that kind of top five, basically, in, in every measure of the race. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I was uh, with her all through Memorial Day weekend as she made six stops. And it's worth noting that the 200 events that they've done in Iowa don't feature the candidate at all. In fact, these events are with their organizers in the local communities. They range from sort of the very earnest and policy driven. I I attended a rural roundtable with their head of rural outreach um, on Saturday. They also include, you know, doing 5Ks, doing movie nights, doing book clubs, although the first book in the book club is uh, Warren's uh, 2017, (laughs) This Fight is Our Fight, which uh, seemed sort of like a boring book club. But um, it is clear that um, uh, as Warren's campaign has taken shape, as all these campaigns have taken shape, that um, it is clear that she is placing a lot of resources and a lot of time, both um, of their staff and of her own. You know, this, uh, this last weekend, I believe it was her 34th event in the state. Now, by contrast, she's only done five in South Carolina and only Mm. four in Nevada and 26 in New Hampshire, despite the fact that she lives a half hour away from there. Um, So it is clear from, you know, as the campaign takes shape, that is she, her campaign sees an advantage in striking early in the very first state. And the way that they are approaching it is by hiring a ton of staff. They already have over 50 people full-time on the ground in Iowa. And the campaign told me that they're going to have a 
quote, significant increase in that number announced on June 15th. Wow. Just so for context, what are we talking about here? I mean, I know some some smaller campaigns don't even have 50 people hired nationally at this point. But like, what what's the next closest in, in Iowa that we know of at this point? The next closest is Cory Booker. And he has, you know, a, a, around 30. We'll have a clear number when the next uh when the, when the next uh, fundraising numbers come out and the FEC reports, but he has about 30, 40 um, people on the ground in Iowa also speak admirably of Kamala Harris's team out there. Mm-hmm. You know, they've held these things called Kamala camps, camps with a K. Um, and Beto O'Rourke's team, despite getting a late start, has, you know, hired uh, a lot of Obama veterans from that 08 race and, and just people that have veterans as well. But just in terms of boots on the ground, you know, it wasn't a coincidence that Warren was first out the gate despite, um, you know, uh, on uh, December 31st. And her first stop was Iowa. Mm-hmm. And they, un, you know, unveiled their team and hired the team and rolled them out just quick. You know, as uh, Emily Parcell, who's an Iowa veteran, been around forever and is a senior advisor for the Warren campaign, she told me by doing the way they did, she put it, we have added exponential days to our calendar. And they just see that when it comes down to it, and especially in Iowa and a caucus, that's a good organizing state. Uh, or like where organization is really important, mm-hmm. that um, when it comes down to it, all these things they're doing now will give them a competitive advantage over the other campaigns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Basically, the, they're, they're trying to build out the, the structures of, of getting small groups of people together, having each of them reach out to people they know and just kind of create this massive feedback loop of, of organization heading into the heading into next year. Exactly. Well, and voters are taking notice too. You know, her events over this last weekend were just in all rural, uh, rural Iowa. So it wasn't mm-hmm. Des Moines, where a lot of candidates go and where the campaign season is always hot. Um, you know, I just talked to a lot of voters in, in Iowa. Voters, in, uh, most of them right now, are sort of in shopping period. They've narrowed it down to you know anywhere between three to five candidates. But that way, they're usually pretty open about what they're seeing and. Um, I never the a uniform response was that Warren's team was visible. They were more organized than the other campaigns at this point. Now, some of the other campaigns will likely ramp up, um, and I'm sure that they will um, add staff, but they are going to be behind. Um, the downside to Warren's bet is by investing so much money in organizers now, um, you know, and also by deciding not to do fundraisers, they might get to December and not have money for advertising. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other campaigns are are doing a, are, are more cautiously um, hoarding some of their resources and keeping it for for that um, for that purpose. Got it. Got it. I mean it 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 seems yeah there's it's it's an interesting you have finite amounts of money, right? And you can spend it on on people kind of trying to to build relationships and that early and that seems like especially as you noted with so many people shopping around for a candidate right now to have potentially someone you know obviously what the candidates do themselves is very important but to have someone you know helping make the the case that seems like it could potentially be an advantage but also we know how much premium the campaigns put on advertising what what's going on at some of these events where as you said the candidate isn't necessarily there but people from Warren's organizing team are trying to get volunteers involved trying to bring new people in I mean a few things you mentioned something about stickers and something about fight cards like what what's this um, so fight cards are the central organizing um, 
I guess, uh, mechanism that the Warren campaign uses, and especially in the early states. Essentially, anyone that goes to any of these events, they fill out what the Warren team calls a fight card. And essentially what this is, is, is it's, a, it's a data-sucking um, a, a, a tool. You know, they ask for all your per- personal information. But they also have, you know, a section where it says, tell us why you're in this fight. And, you know, and then a lot of and so some of these volunteers, these people in the community, they just write, this is what's important to me. The organizers often send these out on social media showing and, you know, sort of develop the community that way. They share, you know, people's reasons. And so it becomes beyond just collecting people's information um, and storing it and then following up with them, you know, by putting some uh boots on the ground, organizers are able to follow up, usually within 24 to 48 hours. They're they're placing a text, they're placing a call. But then you also have this sort of nice, memeable little section of the card where you can send it on social media and, and you can sort of just show your activity. And, um, and, and you know, someone... Um, Someone mentioned to me that like the the campaign is extremely diligent about these cards, and um, someone was telling me that there was one of these little community events. You know, no one was there; their boss wasn't there. But they started counting all the heads, and they realized the number of heads didn't match the number of cards they had filled out. And so they went searching around trying to find out who hadn't filled out the card. <laughs> um, the The stickers are a, a completely different. Um, sort of organizing thing, but of course they have to do with the fight card. So the stickers happen whenever Warren is at an event. If you go to any Warren event, especially in the early states, you will see almost every guest have these bright stick, like round little stickers. And um, the reason is because the Warren campaign is extremely borderline obsessed with getting every single person at every single Warren event to fill out the card. Mm -hmm. And you only put stickers on people that have filled out the card. (laughs) And so if people actually just say, no, I don't want to, I don't want to, um, when they go go in the event, then they still have volunteers and organizers just circling around the room and looking for stickerless people. And then, and then when Warren does these selfie lines afterward, um, uh, you know, where she takes pictures with every single voter that wants a picture, again, the organizers and volunteers are going up and down the line looking for these stickerless people. Huh. That's really interesting. So, I mean, th- this is a fascinating portrait of of the really the nuts and bolts at the lowest level of of how this campaign is is working. Can you what what's the what's the broader context for for where we are now? We talked about it a little bit at the top of the segment, but where, where what's Warren's place within uh, the primary at this moment? So in the national polls, usually she's anywhere between third and sixth. Um, usually it's around like third, fourth. Um, she's obviously been creeping up in the national polls, which I think has helped their national narrative. And that, um, of course, will probably help their grassroots fundraising. But the Warren campaign, uh, at least from people I talk to, don't care about national polls beyond that national narrative that it, that it fuels. I think their strategy is to strike early and in the early states. Like it's, it is all about Iowa and New Hampshire um, for that campaign. And the way they are betting that they're going to win that way is through organizing. Mm-hmm. It is like a really interesting premise because if you look at Joe Biden, who is dominating all the national polls, if you look at all the early states, the state he's weakest in is Iowa. Most polls show him with a you know a high single digit lead, you know around nine, ten points, um, and 
you know, if and since Biden's main argument is about electability, if he loses the first contest or he sets that contest out, you could see how and if Warren does well or exceeds expectations, you could see how that could upend the current dynamics of the race where Biden is just lapping everyone nationally. And, you know, I think even some of the Warren's people on the ground, more so not in National HQ, will say that if you have electability concerns and voters do, whether or not for sexist reasons or because of the DNA test stuff or whatever reasons they have these electability concerns, the only way to truly beat electability concerns is to win. Mm -hmm. And why wait? Um, So I think Iowa and New Hampshire, you look at just how many times they've been to the states. Um, they're looking to strike early and strike hot and hopefully in, in this case, like take out, uh, Bernie Biden or both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, you mentioned Biden, obviously he's the front runner that everyone is, is looking up at right now in terms of the polling, but in, in terms of, uh, maybe the most overlap of, of fight, fighting for voters, it would be Bernie Sanders and, uh, who Elizabeth Warren's campaign is probably eyeing very much the same, uh, w- with some differences, but uh, a similar collection of of people that they're trying to target and get on their side. Yeah, very, very, very much so. And, and you've seen this sort of, you know, Bernie has been hurt by Biden's entrance in the race. He and Warren um, are tied or, or close to tied in, in a lot of these polls right now. Um, and she's outflanked him on a few issues. You know, Bernie has been very focused on sort of what he ran on in 2016, um, whereas, and that has enabled Warren to kind of keep catch him flat-footed on issues like student loan forgiveness. You know, Bernie really brought in free college to the conversation, and then Warren took it a step further. I mean, she even said herself in sort of an implicit dig at, at Bernie, was like, well, my plan's bigger. And, you know, by forgiving student loans, uh, you know, I think it's a, I, I believe it's like a 800 or $600 billion of loan forgiveness, you know, she's been able to uh, to sort of, uh, you know, bob bob and weave and and sort of uh, outflank him a few times. And, you know, she's I think her campaign just sees themselves as like the tortoise, the race here. And they're just going to inch up and inch up and inch mm-hmm. up and persist, if you will. And we'll see. <laughs> That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm very curious to see where this goes. Right. Because we we know from watching past presidential campaigns that that so much of what happens in the off year is about following candidates who all of a sudden catch fire and they have these big bumps and some of them come back down to earth and some of them keep going and that and whereas with with Warren she's in a very different place in in certainly in the in the polling than she was like 3 months ago but there hasn't been a particular moment where it's been like oh my gosh she has caught fire there was a viral moment there was this or that it's just it has been that kind of steady progression uh and I'm curious to see where it goes from here. Yeah. Well, and it, you know, it will be just really fascinating, especially the last two months in Iowa and New Hampshire. You know, there's a we were talking. You know, you'll talk about debates later, but um, you know, there's a debate in Iowa. You know, next January, and she's going to have um, probably still the biggest team in place back then. Back then, and we'll see if it works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we could. I mean, we could all be writing stories in six months about how like every neighborhood organizer in the state is like locked down with her, or we could be, she could be out of money <laughs> because she was paying all these people from the beginning, and we just we don't know. It's you know two roads diverge, and we'll we'll see which one we end up on. Yeah, exactly. I mean, some people uh, think that by not doing fundraisers, she's leaving a ton of money on the table, and 
you know, maybe she'll be able to pay all the field organizers, but then she won't be able to run any Facebook ads, run any TV ads. And I don't know if you can win in Iowa if you're not at least doing some of that. We may we, we may find out. Yep. Hey, Alex, thank you so much for, for coming in to, to uh, talk to us about it. It's great to be here. All right, let's dive into our second data point. And that data point is 2% and also 130,000 donors. And those are the thresholds that Democratic candidates need to hit in order to make the debate stage for the third set of debates coming up in September. Uh, That's right, it's only May, but we're already getting into the criteria of what candidates are going to have to do in order to get onto that September debate stage. And we've got two Politico reporters who have been uh, very, very deep in the weeds on on this question uh, here to uh, talk us through it. First, national political reporter, Elena Schneider. Welcome back, Elena. Thanks for having me. And also back in the studio, the author of Politico's Morning Score, that's our campaign newsletter, Zach Montalaro, who we haven't seen here for a while. Hey, Zach. Thanks for having me back. I snuck in. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in. All right. So, listeners, you may remember uh, a little while back that Elena walked us through uh, the first set of debate criteria that the DNC rolled out uh, Earlier this year, so Elena, quick quick recap: What is it that people uh, are, are having to do to get into the first debates, which are coming up at the end of June, uh, and then the same criteria also qualify them for a debate in July? So there's two paths for these candidates to get on the debate stage. So it's two nights, ten candidates each night, so twenty slots to be filled, and we've obviously got more than twenty candidates who are running. So you can already see the tension heading towards us. Uh, one path is for them to qualify via getting 65,000 individual donors from 20 states and 200 donors from each of those 20 states. And then the second one is to get 1% in three qualifying DNC-approved polls. So it's sort of an either-or through these two paths. You can either do through uh, donors or through polling. But the complicated part comes in once we had crossed over 20 20 candidates, meaning that somebody was going to have to get cut. And so once once we get into those rounds, it, it, we start looking at who double qualifies. So who was able to both reach the polling threshold and also the donor threshold. And so Zach has a uh, has a uh, real expert um, view of who is uh, either going to certainly be on the debate stage, very likely to be, or maybe is going to get cut off. So I think he can also walk us through that. But that sort of gives a sense as to how we're going to get how these candidates are going to get on in either June or July. But basically, I think the upshot of this is, as you said, we're, we're essentially only limited by the fact that the DNC said we are we can only do 20 candidates. They're right. going to do two nights with 10 candidates each. We can only do that. And so basically, almost everyone has qualified via one criteria or the other at this point, except for some candidates who got in really, really late compared to the others. Now, Zach, these new criteria for the next round of debates have significantly raised the bar. Right. And it's not even two paths anymore. It's two hurdles, basically, on the same path. Yeah. So unlike the first round of debates, the ones in the fall, you have to cross two paths. It's not an either or. It's an and. The first path is basically doubling up the polling threshold, bringing it from 1% to 2% in four polls. So that's an additional percent and an additional poll. And the second path, the one that's causing a lot of consternation, is the one that it doubles up the number of grassroots donors you need to get. You go from 65,000 donors, you need to get 130,000 donors with 420 different states. So that's basically doubling the threshold. And it's going to make it a lot harder. 
Yeah, it's going to make it a lot harder. Um, you know, so far, 13 candidates have gotten at least halfway there, have gotten at least 65,000 donors. But that we know right now, only four candidates have crossed that 130,000 donor mark. And, you know, four out of 24, not a lot. And really quickly, who are the four out of the 24 that you just mentioned, Zach? Sure. So the four candidates we know who have crossed that threshold are Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Pete Buttigieg. People who are likely there, We this is based off only their first day donors, you know, are uh, Beto O'Rourke is probably very close. Joe Biden is also probably very close. But we know that those four are already have crossed at 130,000 threshold. Got it. Now, obviously, they've still got months to go here. But uh, Elena, you and Zach were writing yesterday about how that there's already uh, some consternation among some of the uh, less prominent Democratic candidates about the, the basically these criteria could could essentially like mean the end of their campaigns if these public showcase events, these debates are as important as we think they're going to be for everyone to get their message out. Look, so we've long been anticipating the likelihood that these, uh, the, the DNC debates and this enormous field of candidates were going to have a collision. And we're really starting to see that blow up in front of a lot of candidates' faces right now because the DNC wants to narrow the field. There is a real sense that they want to avoid some of the problems that came out of 2016. They want to be seen as fair, even-handed, allowing every want an opportunity to get on that debate stage, but also the tension of needing to eventually winnow down the field so that it's not 20 candidates heading into the fall when they start to get a little nervous about coalescing behind a certain nominee or at least a couple of potential nominees. At the same time, candidates see these debate stages as huge opportunities for them to potentially blow up and to have a moment and to uh, get more attention. It's sort of their opportunities to really introduce themselves to the American people in a way that uh, these individual town halls or their efforts in Iowa, New Hampshire are not necessarily going to have as big of an audience. And so we have been talking to a whole host of presidential campaigns, and in particular those who are in much greater danger of potentially not making it in the fall, who are expressing a lot of, uh, as Zach said, consternation, frustration, fury, sort of depends on the candidate, depends on the level of anger um, that you're dealing with, where they're sort of saying that these these thresholds force them to sort of reshuffle their priorities, putting all of their attention and resources into sort of this, as in their words, an artificial rule, an artificial criteria that has the never... The specifically. Exactly, but. the donor specifically, that has never existed before. Polling has often been used as a way to, to, to get the debate field clarified, but never a donor uh, number. And so they feel like this is the DNC sort of playing God and 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 cutting off candidates and insurg- potential insurgent candidates long before they've really had an opportunity to really even get off the ground. It was interesting uh, watching the, the process of you guys reporting out this story yesterday because uh, I, I, I could hear you guys talking about that you guys you were having, arguing yeah you i mean you, you guys were having a disagreement about about exactly you know basically like what you think uh the ultimate upshot of of these rules that zach you you seem to think that it's actually pretty reasonable for them to be uh to be kind of upping upping the requirements at this point and and you ran through a little bit it's you know it has the potential to really drastically curtail the number of people involved in the fall debates yeah it could absolutely really drastically the number of people on stage but there's still going to be a good number of candidates who are already at this moment, several months out, can basically say, we're going to be on that stage. The top candidates, the ones that you're thinking of, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, barring an absolute catastrophe and an absolute collapse in polling numbers, they're already on the stage. They've crossed the donor threshold. You know, they only need to get 2% in four polls after the first debate. You know, they, they're tracking well above that right now. Um, there's about six candidates that I think are more or less on the stage right now. Um, there's three more with work to do who are in a good spot. 
um, Andrew Yang actually being one of them. He, and he's a good counterpoint to people who say these are reasonable numbers. Someone like Andrew Yang, who none of us heard of before this campaign started, has a pretty reasonable shot, not only of being on these first rounds of debates, which he absolutely will be on stage, but being on the fall debates too. He tweeted yesterday that he's just about 20,000 donors away from that donor threshold, from that new donor threshold. And Andrew Yang's campaign is confident that they can get 2% in these polls. You know, he pretty consistently polls at 1%, which is a lot better than could be said for a lot of quote unquote national politicians. Andrew Yang, you know, take what you want for polling at 1% over 0%, but Andrew Yang pretty consistently polls at 1% in a bunch of national polls. So the argument for people who think that these are two, that these are reasonable thresholds is that, you know, a candidate like Andrew Yang, it's open to him. So it should be open to other people who just need to mobilize their base and, you know, speak their message to their voters. Basically, the, these rules are, are potentially like dividing out some of the people who are using the presidential campaign as a platform versus people who are who are building something that, that could potentially lift them to victory. Right. Now, Elena, I, I think you come down on, on the other side of this. I mean, you've talked to a lot of these campaigns who feel like they, they're, as you said, they're being distracted, essentially, from the work of trying to build up and meet people in, in Iowa and New Hampshire who are in this, that first caucus, that first primary, and are instead like desperately trying to manufacture a viral moment or, or run a ton of Facebook ads or stuff like that. So I don't totally disagree with what Zach has said and that there is obviously a need to winnow down the field that is part of the DNC's role in all of this. But I think that a very legitimate complaint from some of these campaigns is that there is sort of this artificial timeline of we need to do this by September or by October. And that doesn't leave a ton of time for campaigns to build a quote unquote insurgent effort when when you've got to do this over the summer months when many of us are going to be on vacation. People are going to go home for the summer. The summer months tend to be a lot quieter for fundraising. And I think that this sort of in their minds creates sort of there's not a lot of clarity as to why it has to happen as quickly. And I think that's on us as reporters to go out and find out a little bit more as to maybe why this is happening as, as quickly as it is. But I think that it, it tends to advantage people who are able to go viral online over people who've maybe done more traditional campaigning. And maybe that's just where we are. And I think that that's a lot of an argument that we even heard from, say, Howard Dean, who sort of invented this catching fire online um, back in 2004, that basically this is just the way that it is. This is the way that politics is going to be run. Now, you're not going to be able to win the presidency by going into just living rooms in Iowa, New Hampshire. You have to be somebody who can have a pretty quick, broad national base. And that's where you have to build from. You can't start sort of at, at a person to person uh level of your campaign. And maybe that is where we are now. It's it's interesting in, in all this, like watching the, the DNC try to manage this situation because, um, as you said, Elena, they're responsible for running these debates. They can't be just letting anyone who's filing FEC paperwork on the stage or else the, there's no point in having them. They become unruly. And yet the DNC lost um, so much of its internal credibility in 2015 and 2016 over the the, you know, the fight over the, how the debates were set up that year. And, and it's just it's, it's so interesting watching them manage or try to manage the situation uh, without being seen as putting a thumb on the scale uh, for or against uh, particular candidates. And I, you, you guys also, uh, Zach, you, you were looking into this last week, especially as they're trying to figure out just some of the mechanics of how they're going to set up these first debates was another little debate scoop that, that you got recently. And even even that is sparking uh, even even little things like that, which I'll let you explain right now, is just kind of sparking these weird flares of, of discontent and and 
animosity toward toward the DNC, which is it kind of illustrates how they're sometimes in a no lose no win situation. Yeah, listen, I wouldn't want to be working at the DNC right now. Everyone's angry at them for something. But what they said last week is what they're trying to do is avoid a quote unquote kitty table debate. If you recall in 2016, Republicans did this where they kind of banished their lower tier candidates to a <laughs> to a debate before the regular debate. The that, matinee debate. The matinee debate yeah. where there was at one point a liberal empty auditorium that they were speaking to. It was by every definition a kitty table debate. The DNC is saying, no, we don't want to do that for the first round of debates. We don't want to do that at all. We want to give these candidates a chance to go to toe to toe to give the Joe Bidens, the person leading the polls, you know, have an opportunity to be, he could be matched up with someone like Andrew Yang towards the bottom, Kirsten Gillibrand towards the bottom. So what the DNC is doing is they are dividing the field randomly, but then they're also splitting it into two groups, the the top tier candidates, the candidates polling at or above 2%. So not a particularly high bar. There's eight of those are going to be split up evenly over the two nights and the bottom tier candidates, candidates polling below 2%, which is everybody else, going to also be split up over those two nights. And so basically, I mean, we still don't know exactly how they're going right. to do it, but they're going to draw lots or ping right. pong balls or, or whatever. And and it's just they're, they're going to have a pot of the mm-hmm. 2% plus and a pot of the under two. And yeah. so the actual, the odds of any two candidates, whether they're in the same pot or not, of ending up on the same debate stage on either June 26th or June 27th, for example, those odds really don't change. It's still close to a 50-50 chance that any two candidates could end up on the stage together. Yeah, correct. And, and yet, and yet we saw this like outcry of there there was an assumption I think before people read the story uh, once it got out there that it's like this was somehow designed to prevent essentially from a lot of the complaints on online that that people thought that this was designed to prevent Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden from ending up on the same stage, which it, it really doesn't affect. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely not the case. Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden can still very much end up on the same stage. I think it's like a 43 percent shot of them ending up on the same stage versus so, like 47, 48 right. beforehand. So we've, we did, had to do a lot of math yes. uh, in the newsroom, which if anyone out there knows any <laughs> journalists, you know that that could be a little bit of a fraught. Uh, exercise sometimes. And I know that this all sounds um, just a little nerdy uh, and just a it's little the in the weeds. Hey. It's the nerd cast. <laughs> but I think that there, it, like, I think that the value, I think that we can't overstate the value and the importance of, of these debates. And and sometimes they don't actually turn out to be something that actually rocket launches a candidacy into relevancy. But I do think that they have the potential for, for to sink one and no, look no further than Marco Rubio with this fiction that Barack Obama doesn't know what getting turned into a robot by Chris Christie. And that was the beginning of the end. Arguably, Rubio turned himself into a robot and Chris Christie just pointed it out. Fair. He knows exactly there it is, what he's the memorized 25 second speech. Well, that's the, that's there the it reason is, why this campaign is so, so I think that even though it maybe it sounds a little crazy to spend as much time and even for these campaigns to spend as much time bellyaching and talking about their frustrations around this to the press, even if they do it, albeit privately, that that there is a reason for it. And because I think that a lot of these people see this as a chance and maybe their only chance to break out in any kind of serious way. Yeah, and I want to I want to give the, point. Yeah, I want to give the DNC some credit here, too. They have been fairly straightforward with what the requirements are, and they've been giving months and months of notice as well. You know, for these debates coming up in June, they, they laid these out in February before a lot of candidates were even in the race. The requirements we're talking about, you know, doubling the requirements, that's what debates in the fall. They're giving these candidates a lot of time to respond. And sure, a lot of these campaigns won't like it, especially the lower tier candidates, the candidates who have not had their moment yet. But they have a lot of time. They got months and months to adjust. No, that's a great point. And I I think I'm glad you brought us back there, Elaine, because the reason why everyone is so invested in this little data, these little pieces of minutia about how this process is going to run is because they think it's so important uh, and, and it could really shape the campaign going forward. 
Uh, Zach, I think we got to let you go. I think there's more more uh, debate news happening right now that we got to let you go chase. So thank thank you so much for coming in the studio to talk us through this. Thanks, and good back. luck with your future endeavors on this front. <laughs> Elena, thank you for coming in as well. Thanks for having me. And as always, a big thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in this week. We are going to hand things over right now to one listener to help us out with the credits. We have Rebecca Maveris from Orlando, Florida, who's going to take it away. Nerdcast is produced by Michaela Rodriguez. Dave Shaw is the executive producer, and their illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, rate the show and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thank you, Rebecca. Listeners, if you want to read the credits for the Nerdcast, shoot us an email at nerdcast at politico.com. Thanks again. We'll talk next week.